All right. Good morning. Oh, that was, it's not that cold this morning. I'm sorry. Good morning. There you go. And welcome to those online that are tuning in with us as well. They're going to give me a little more cord here so I can roam and not, uh, you know, I, I did see a cartoon one time, and it was a long time ago when every pastor had to speak with a mic like this with a real cord. And, and you know, some pastors can get a little, well, a little intense, okay? You know, you know what I'm talking about? And, and, and in the cartoon, there was a mother and her little, like, three-year-old sitting on the front row, and, and the pastor was real intense, and, and, and as he got excited, he kept talking and moving, and, and next thing you know, he, he was like, getting wound up in his own cord, right? And then the kid leaned over to the mother and said, if he gets loose, is he going to hurt us? So I just promised you that even if I get loose, we're not here to hurt you. We're here to help you discover life in Christ and grow in Christ, and uh, it's just an honor to open the Word of God together. So turn in your Bibles, digital or physical like mine, and let's go, let's go to Acts chapter 11 together. Acts chapter 11. All right. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the life that you've given us in Christ. Thank you so much for your Word Uh, The Word of God that speaks into our hearts, speaks into our lives, full of wisdom. I pray that uh, as we now worship by listening, that we would listen to you, learn from you, and be open to being changed by you uh, and your Word. So we love you. We thank you for this chance to be with the Seacoast family of yours. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know about you, but nicknames can be tough to live with. Um, Sometimes you have to live up to them. Sometimes you got to live beyond them. But they can be kind of brutal. Uh, In fact, if you were with me, kind of think back right now to when you were, like, in your youth. What was your nickname? Now, you don't have to say it. Okay, but does it make you feel good or does it make you think, oh, my gosh, I'm glad that's over? So for me, it was a little bit of both because uh, when I was, well, let me go back. I'll give you my two, my top two nicknames. Now, these cannot be repeated beyond this Sunday. Okay, you you, you have to promise me right now you're not going to call me this forever. Do I I get hands up on that? Okay, all right, good. But uh, the first was I was born into a family where... um, I was the third boy, and my father had kind of a strange name. And uh, I knew that it was strange because they chose not to give it to my older brother. They chose not to give it to brother number two. But when they got brother number three, when I was born, and my mother declared that she would not even pick out a boy's name because she wanted a girl so bad, which meant I was the third boy in the second disappointment, that But mom didn't tell me this, by the way, until I was very secure in my self-image and all that good stuff, you know. But but yeah, I was the third boy, second disappointment to come out of the womb, and and they and they didn't even have a name thought up. So finally, they caved in and said, "Well, let's just give him your name to my dad." So my dad's name, at least his first name, got passed on. My middle name is actually Dale. Most of you know me as Dale, but that's not my first name. My first name begins with H. I kept it a secret from everyone growing up because I was always embarrassed that it was strange. 
And then there came a day when it leaked out. My first name is actually the name of a, of a city in, in, um, in Israel. It's uh, Hebron or Hebron over there, but Hebron is the way I was pronounced. So I'm Hebron. Okay, well, well, you say, well, that's just kind of a strange name. Yeah, but then when I got in college, one of my buddies heard it, figured it out, and began to always call me from that day on Heb. So I'm Heb to him. I'll, he, if he sends me a message on Instant Messenger or something on Facebook, his name's Kevin, he'll say, hey, Heb, how's up? You know, what's up? No one in the world calls me Heb except him. And in college, it kind of stuck for a while. And I was glad when I got out of college and moved to Dallas, Texas, no, again, nobody knew my name. But probably the toughest one was when I went back to my youth. And, and when I was uh, in junior high school, now, junior high is tough on everybody, amen? I mean, junior high is mo it's the most vicious years of, of most kids' lives growing up. And when I was in the seventh grade, uh, my uh, phys ed teacher, who later became my football coach, and, and a dear friend, but back then he had a habit of giving everyone nicknames. Everyone had a nickname. So, you know, at the beginning of the year, they had this thing called the obstacle course that you had to run. And, you know, and it was about a mile long or so, but it also had things you had to climb over and stuff. And, you know, and, and I, you know, I, I ran it. And as I finished, he announced, here comes Dale, the snail. Yeah, Dale the Snail was finishing toward the end of the pack. Uh, I was never known for my blazing speed. So the rest of my years, that coach would call me, hey, Dale the Snail, come over here, okay? Now that actually kind of motivated me because I didn't want to have that be true of me. So, you know, to be honest, between the seventh grade and my senior year, um, I worked my tail off to literally <laughs> makes you a little faster. Okay, but yeah, I, I worked to uh, I worked to to work on my speed, and actually by my senior year, for for the big guys on the team, not the running backs, but for the big guys on the team, I actually ended up being the fastest big guy on the team. But he'd still call me Dale the Snail. He'd say, "Man, Snail, you're going, you you you're changing." So sometimes nicknames are things you you want to they motivate you even if they're intended to be something negative in the beginning. So from this day on, I am no longer Dale the snail, okay, although it's probably still true of me. We're going to look at a passage today in which the church, the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, as they've been called up to this point, are going to earn their first nickname, their first nickname. In fact, before we read the whole passage, look at verse 26 with me. It says, for the entire year they met with the church, growing them, teaching them. They taught considerable numbers of them. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, when you hear that word today, most of you would say, well, of course they're called Christians because they're Christians. We're Christians. We're followers of Christ. But in that day and time, that literally meant little Christ. These are the little Christ people. Uh, and it was most likely a, de a derogatory term. But yet it's a term that for some reason, when the, when the people that wanted to brand them, describe them with a nickname, 
Oh, those are the, it's kind of like being the little Jesus people. They're the Jesus people. When I was in the 70s, late 60s, 70s, coming through uh, high school and college uh, and grad school during those years, that was the Jesus movement in the U.S. And a lot of people got real excited about Jesus. And they weren't excited about the church because they had never been to a church. They weren't connected to churches. They didn't dress like people in the church. You know, they, but, but they would come barefoot in their jeans uh, to, to church because they got excited about Jesus. And they literally, I remember Time, Life Magazine had a cover story one time on the Jesus people, the Jesus people who had been so changed by this encounter with this idea of Jesus Christ and all that he was and all that he did that they became so identified with him that they were, they were Jesus people. In fact, I also knew that when I was in college, those that didn't like Jesus people would call them Jesus freaks. Jesus freaks. That's all they seem to be in touch with. So as we study the Word of God today, open with me now in Acts chapter 11, because I think what we're going to see is the birth of this new church in Antioch. And this new church, which is made up of, of people that were previously outside of the circle of faith, uh, they were not, it wasn't a predominantly Jewish church. This was one of the first early primarily Gentile, non-Jewish churches, but made up of people that had been, that got so excited about this Jesus, about this Christ, that they end up getting labeled. You know, those are the little Christ people. Listen to the word of God. See what we can learn from this church. Verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews alone. But, and here's the shift in the history of the church, that one word, but. It says, but there were some of them that were being scattered by the persecution, some of them, uh, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, that is, to the non-Jews, preaching Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, when we look at the story, I call this the story of uh, the baby church. It's the story of the baby church growing up in Acts chapter 11, 19 to 30, as the passage we'll be covering. And notice, first of all, that in Acts 11, it begins with this idea that God actually takes something very evil, which was the execution of Stephen, the, the, uh, the fact that Stephen became a martyr for his faith, uh, began, and that, that, that persecution that was spreading, uh, especially uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea, the birthplace of our faith, uh, those people began to spread. They began to go to places that were safer. They began to go uh, to get away from persecution. So God took a very evil thing, which was the persecution of the church, the death of Stephen, and he actually turns it for good by, by kind of forcing the church out of its comfort zone, you might say, and to scatter around the, the uh, Mediterranean world. 
And some of them landed in this place called Antioch. Now, what do we learn about this church as we, as we kind of break down the major lessons we can learn about them? Because we're not here today just to study history. We're here to, to study what it means from God's word to be a healthy church. Because this is one of the healthiest churches described in all of Scripture. Even though it's new, it's like a baby growing up. What do we learn? I, I want to break it into three major lessons. And don't be surprised because they're going to align themselves with what you often hear Matt and, and Pastor Ryan uh, say to you, which is what Seacoast is seeking to be. And, and the amazing thing was when I looked at this passage, I thought this one passage has all three of the major elements of our vision for the church we want to be. So let's learn from it. Number one, this church at Antioch and our church as well, like Jesus, is a home for the lost. It's a church that's reaching out to people that are outside the usual bounds of us. The church is not for us. The church is for outsiders, not just insiders. Seacoast should never be and will never be kind of an inside private club for religious people that want to gather with others that think like them and look like them and, and exclude others. That's not what we're about. We are about getting outside. That's why I love Community Serve Day. Community Serve Day is just a one Sunday per year snapshot of what we want to live all through the year. So this is not the end of our lifestyle of getting outside of our walls. It's just a snapshot to encourage us, motivate us, show us that, wow, there's a lot we can do to love on Encinitas and to love on North County. And, and, and I love it. And I love the fact that when they talk about it, that, that Community Serve Day is, you, you should never say our church is canceled next Sunday for Community Serve Day. No, no, no. Church is not canceled. Church is meeting, but it's meeting scattered. It's meeting out there instead of here in our plaza. So whether you are watching online with us or whether you are here in the plaza now in one of our services, you know, we want you to make sure you sign up, get involved, find something you can do to uh, show the love of Christ to our community. This, that's what this church was doing. It's interesting that it was founded by some people that came from Cyprus and Cyrene. Why is that even mentioned? It's probably because Cyprus and Cyrene were areas where um, the Jewish population wasn't as, well, it wasn't as strict in following all the Jewish law necessarily because it wasn't in Jerusalem. It wasn't in Judea. It wasn't in Galilee. No, this, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's a little more remote. And there, there was a big Jewish population there, but they weren't not quite as strict. And, and they were already more comfortable interacting with and being around other, other people of other religions and, and, and Greeks and Romans. And so it, they, they were a little more multicultural, you might say, already. And, and God used them. He used that experience to say they would be the perfect people for me to send over to Antioch. Antioch was a big city. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, okay, next to after Rome and Alexandria. So Antioch is not some little podunk town. Is that a word, podunk? That's a West Virginia term. That's where I grew up. I'm sorry if I'm broadening your vocabulary. But anyway, it wasn't some podunk town. No, Antioch was a major center of influence, and strategically, it was an important place to go and to help plant the, the message of Christ. Um, and the disciples of Christ went there, and, and they got a good reception. And now, the non-Jews, 
the non-Jewish population was coming to faith in big numbers. Well, that caught the attention of the folks back in Jerusalem. Word spread quickly. Uh, Antioch would be in modern-day uh, Syria, for example. So it wasn't that far away, but uh, you know, the word spread about the movement that was growing there. So what did they do? They sent uh, Barnabas. Now, why did they send Barnabas? Well, Barnabas was one of their best leaders. Barnabas was one of their key leaders. He wasn't among the original disciples, I mean the original 12 or the original apostles, but he was a very, very key leader in the New Testament. And so they really send one of their very best there. Also, Barnabas, by the way, was from, from Cyprus. So if the word is that, hey, these people from Cyprus have gone to Antioch and planted the church and it's growing and, and we need to check it out to see if they're staying true to what the, the Jesus really taught and, and see, see if it's healthy or not. Well, they chose, well, hey, Barnabas, you might know these people. After all, you're, they're, from your, they're from your neck of the woods. That's another West Virginia phrase. Okay, they're from your area. And, 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 and Barnabas came and was thrilled with what he found. And this is what he found. Listen, pick it up back up in verse 22. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. And then when he had arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man. Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. So Barnabas, man, there's a lot to unpack here. But Barnabas is thrilled to see that this is the real deal. It's interesting. It says he saw the grace of God at work. You know, when, when you think of the grace of God, we just think of a theological idea, right? Grace means uh, it's the unconditional, unearned, unmerited favor and love of God. So it's the unearned love of God. We are saved by grace through faith and nothing else. It's the grace of God, a free gift. We don't earn God's love and forgiveness. It's given to us through what Christ did on the cross and his death and resurrection. And then God, by his grace, when we come to him in humble faith, putting our trust in him, by grace we are saved through faith. And not only are we saved, but we begin to be transformed to be different kinds of people. It's all by grace. And, and that, I love the fact that grace becomes visible. It says that he saw the grace of God at work. See, when people see us and they see that God's grace is having that kind of an impact on our lives, that it's changing the way we live, changing the way we talk, changing the way we treat people, when the grace of God begins to transform us, then we begin to, um, we begin to be noticeable. It's like the church, the followers of Jesus began to actually kind of act like Jesus. Now, I'm, let's, let's be honest. None of us pull that off every day to perfection, right? I mean, I think Jesus is quite the standard of what we are to be, how we are to live. But we can indeed become more Christ-like. And as we grow into Christ-likeness, we develop the heart of Christ we begin to live the values of Christ. We begin to have the love of Christ for people. Man, that begins to change 
us from the inside out. And that's what Barnabas saw. He saw the grace of God at work. He didn't go there and say, yeah, what I found was this is a great group of people. No, no, no. No, this is a great work of God. This is a great work of God in his grace. And if I want to just bring that down to the personal level for every one of us, that's really, that's really the goal of the Christian life, is to be so enamored with the grace of God, so in love with a God who, by grace, gives us the gift of life, gives us our abilities, gives us any, any, um, any talents that we have, any opportunities that we have. We don't earn them. They're given to us by grace. And then we apply the faith. And yeah, we have to get to work. We'll see that. But as we begin to grow in the word of God and we begin to grow in the understanding of our faith and, and, and appreciate grace, it's, it can transform us. And that's what people notice. People notice that these new followers of Jesus, they were just, everything was about Christ. It's Christ that did it. It's Christ that saved them. It's Christ that lives in them now by his spirit. It's Christ who empowers them to change. It's Christ that they're excited about. And, 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 to, and, and they say, Christ, 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 Christ. All they can talk about is Christ. So they nickname them. Those are the little Christ people, now known as Christians. Sometimes even a negative brand sticks because they probably thought, hey, they think they're making fun of us, but that's exactly what we want to be. We want to be all about Christ. So sure, call us little Christ, little Christians. They began to grow. It's interesting, too, here, a little side note that Barnabas shows his own humility in that as they began to grow and the numbers began to grow, it says this. He says, in considerable numbers, verse 24, were brought to the Lord, and he left for Tarsus. Tarsus is further north around the Mediterranean region. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Remember that? Saul, also known as Paul the Apostle Paul, uh, author of a, a big chunk of the New Testament, uh, especially the, the letters to the different churches, uh, probably the greatest, um, the greatest early missionary uh, who ever lived. And he, Barnabas, instead of thinking, wow, I'm here in Antioch, I'm, I'm the expert, I'm the teacher, and... Uh, I've got a good thing going here. I mean, this is my mega church, right? No, no, no. You know, Barnabas said, man, there's something happening here, and I need help. Let me go get the best guy I can think of, which is Saul. So he goes up to Tarsus, convinces Saul to come back with him, and he says, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for the entire year they met with the church, and they taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now, just a couple of high points of a healthy church. A healthy church goes deep. A healthy church doesn't just have the goal of more converts, bigger numbers. A healthy church wants to turn converts into disciples, followers, learners who, uh, who can go deep. And, and in this case, they had like a one year. I don't know what they did in that year. But Barnabas and, and the Apostle Paul teamed up, 
and they taught and taught and taught. See, growing in Christ isn't something that just happens automatically. You know, God says, you got to get in my word, and you got to get my word in you. You know, Jesus at one point in John 15 says that, uh, that we are to abide in his word, and the word abides in us. Jesus says, abide in me, and I will abide in you, uh, because apart from me, you can do nothing. So there is the absolute dependence upon the Christ who comes to live in us, the spirit of Christ, indwells you the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Uh, look up Romans 8, 9 if you want to later. Romans 8, 9 says that if, if any man does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. So you don't earn the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ is a gift, comes to indwell you the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The spirit indwells you. Now, that's a mystery, but it's a reality. It's a mystery you can count on and depend on. And that's why Jesus said, draw your life from me, abide in me, and I'm going to abide or live in you because apart from me, you can do nothing. But then he also says, abide in prayer and abide in my word and abide in fellowship with other believers called the church now. So... It's not that we do nothing to grow. We need to, we need to realize our faith. We need to work at our faith, not as in doing works that earn God's grace. It's all by his grace. But we need to get into the word and let the word get into us and learn to live in dependence on his spirit. And as they did that, this church grew. Healthy churches, therefore, become families of growing disciples. That's the big idea. You become a family of growing disciples, growing together. And then it comes down to a third and final element of the church. Here it is. It happens in verse 27, uh, kind of spontaneously. Here we go. Now, at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. So this, this actually happened, and uh, it was predicted. And it says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, it means uh, resources, money, to the proportion that any of, any of the disciples had means, each of them, underline the word each, each of them determined, underline determined, to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders, that is, in Jerusalem. So what we learn is a healthy church is a home for the lost. We like to use the phrase, the lost and wandering. That's what we need to be, reaching out beyond people uh, to people that are not like us, but yet have a common need like us for Jesus Christ. Secondly, as those people engage, they become family. In fact, and then 
as you become family, you grow deep in the Word. You get into the Word. You get in one of our life groups. You get in one of the Bible studies that help you go deeper in your faith. But then something happens when you become family. This church heard that the church in Judea, which was being heavily persecuted, was going to go through this famine that they would go through as well. So what do they do? They organized amongst themselves and they said, we want every single one of us to get involved. We're going to take up a collection. We're going to collect some money, some resources, and send it to the church in Jerusalem. Send it to the church in Judea to help them out. And, and what they became was they became a movement of compassion and generosity. Now, it's founded, it's interesting. The Apostle Paul, as far as we know, and um, uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, as far as we know, didn't command this church to do this. It said they did it to help the brethren. That's a family term. The brothers and sisters. You see, when you realize you become family, you become a home for the lost, you become a family of disciples, families take care of one another. And they realized our brothers and sisters back in Judea, who, by the way, just months earlier were debating whether or not to accept Gentiles into the church. So in some ways, it's, it's, it's really cool that the people that were previously outsiders now become insiders and actually become role models for generosity and compassion because they realize that the movement of Jesus Christ is local, yes, but it's also global. It's local, but it's also global. Three key phrases, in proportion to their means. In other words, some people could give a lot because they were wealthy. Other people were very poor, but even they could give according to their means. They could give a small amount, but perhaps even a bigger sacrifice. Uh, it says each one did it. Everyone can be involved in serving, giving, whether you're using your time, your talents, whether you're using your money. Each one of the disciples of Jesus are called to, be, to get involved, uh, to be generous, be compassionate. Each one, according to their means. And then it says, and they determined to send this gift. And it's a word that indicates they... They, they were, they were going to make it happen. It wasn't easy, but they were determined to follow through and do it. They developed a plan, they organized, and they got generous. You see, when God wants us to learn generosity, um, there's a phrase that we've used here at Seacoast, and that is God's will for generosity is not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. It's not equal giving, it's equal sacrifice. And that's kind of what God wants all of us to do. He wants us to look at our lives and to say, okay, God, what have you, what have you given to me by your grace? You've given me talents, you've given me time, you've given me money or resources, uh, possessions. And then he wants us to say, all right, God, they're yours. You know, if, you, if we had time to go into more depth on this concept of Christian generosity, it's based on the idea that when you realize that every good gift you have is, is a gift of God's grace. 
And you may say, oh, no, 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 Dale, you don't realize. I've worked hard to get my education and my career and my job. And, you know, I did that. God didn't do that. I did that. To which I say, and who gave you that opportunity to do that? Who gave you the brains to do that? Who set you in a place where you could be blessed to live in a place like we live and with the resources we have? And, and, we, and you begin to realize, man, every gift I have ultimately goes back to God. And then he wants us to open our hand and say, okay, God, they're yours. And sure, I'll enjoy them and care for my family and live off of them. I don't think God's calling all of us to go off to monasteries and take a vow of poverty and live as monks. That's not taught in Scripture. But we, he is teaching us, and this church is modeling that every one of them, as they had means, became generous. Wow. The outsiders become insiders, become family. Next thing you know, they're setting an example to the older Christians, the older churches in generosity. Seacoast, I believe uh, this is one of our core values. We have always been a church that looked outside. My wife and I, if you don't know me, are privileged to not only be on the teaching team here, and, and my role is, as I've gotten a little older and other busy doing my other things, is reduced now, so you don't see me up here as often, but that's okay. It gives us more of a chance to develop our team, and, but uh, we love Seacoast. This is our church, but we spend about 90% of our time now focused on training pastors in Africa, training pastors here in the U.S. Um, uh, I teach part-time at Dallas seminary and their doctoral program, but, but the main thing we do is trying to equip the church in Africa. And now why, why do we do that? Well, it's simply because when Becky and I approached what we call the third third of our life, we asked the question, okay, God, what have you given to us over the course of our life that, that would be of greatest value to others around this world? And we identified, well, you know, how do you do ministry and keep your family healthy at the same time? That's kind of our big idea. And we felt that's our sweet spot. And we said, well, where is it most needed? And we determined in our case, God led us to Rwanda and Tanzania and Kenya and now seven countries. And that's where, that's where our time is spent and focused on every single day. We're in communication with Africa. Well, we can do that partially because of your generosity. Seacoast is our number one supporting church. We have other people and individuals, you know, but you are involved in Africa. Maybe you didn't know that. I'm not encouraging you to do what I do because you're not me. But every one of us can be asking, God, what can you do with what you've given to me? And take your experience, your training, your life, no matter what age you are, whether you're in high school or whether you're uh, in my phase of life, um, and say, God, here's my life. Use me. That's what healthy churches do. So what we realize is there's a lot we can learn from this baby church that's growing you want to pull it all together, 
If you've never trusted Christ, come to faith and begin to grow. Join the family. But join the movement. Make a difference. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for uh, all that you have given to Seacoast. The number one gifts you've given are these people that I'm looking at and the people following us online. Uh, We thank you for every single person here today, whether it's their first Sunday or whether they've been here for 20, 30 years. We pray that you would take us and make us, Father, a home for the lost who needs you. Make us a family of disciples who go deep and make us a movement that impacts the world, both locally through things like Community Serve Day coming up, but globally through our missionaries, through our gifts. uh, Make us a movement that makes a difference. In Christ's name, amen.